didn't think Corey was going to uh, pray for me. I mean, he prays for me, but I didn't know he was going to. Isn't it? Don't you find it awkward when you kind of become the center of attention? This is why I had uh, tremors when it came to public speaking for so many years. And uh, what saved the day for me was, I mean, the calling of God kind of made that for me inevitable. And so I just, it, it became easier when I realized I have something more important than me to talk about. And that's really what, what talking to you on Sundays is all about, something more important than me, and that is the Lord. So that's what makes it uh, perhaps easy. Uh, at least I hope, I, hope I uh, lead you to think it's easy. Uh, but um, So we're in uh, Matthew 26, 52 this morning in our Sobering Sayings of Jesus series. In life, actions have consequences. Have you learned that yet? Actions have consequences? This isn't a revelation for you? For every action, there's a consequence. We love the actions. We don't always like the consequences. We can't control the consequences, but we can do a much better job with the consequences if we control the actions. And the more you know about human life, the more you study human behavior, and the better you understand yourself. And then above all, the more you put your life into the hands of God, you can do a pretty good job of controlling your actions. In fact, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's called self-control. Well, this morning, we're looking at consequences because the saying of Jesus has everything to do with consequences. All who take up the sword will die by the sword. He makes it pretty plain. You could say that uh, violence begets violence. Or as we say, live by the sword, die by the sword. Uh, Perhaps you've heard what goes around comes around. Or, as Paul put it in his letter to the Galatians, the sixth chapter and seventh verse, you reap what you sow. From this saying of Jesus, uh, we learn actions have consequences, and we also learn that Jesus will have nothing to do with swords, even in his defense. From the setting of this saying, because this saying doesn't just float in the air, there's an occasion, there's a situation. Jesus speaks to a person in a situation, and he says, put away your sword. Literally, put your sword back in its place. All who take up the sword will die by the sword. That's a pretty strong rebuke. 
And so from the setting, we learn that since Jesus says this to one of his disciples, we learn that disciples are unfinished projects. They're unfinished works. If you're a disciple, it's not over. It's, it's still on. It's still going on. The work is yet ahead. It isn't all finished. And that's important. Let's read this saying in its larger context. In Matthew chapter 26, we'll begin at verse 47. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So he's, he's in their hands. They've got, got him by the arms, I would think, at least. And at that moment, behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to the Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber? And think about that. Have you come out against a thief, an outlaw? With swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day. I sat in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled, which means they ran away. Put your sword away. All who take up the sword, all who draw the sword, will die by the sword. So who was it that pulled the sword? Matthew doesn't mention it. Mark doesn't mention it. Luke doesn't mention it. But John does. Yeah, 
he's got the dope on who did it. <laughs> it was Peter. He probably had a, you know, a, a machaira, or machaira is a sword, but it can also be a pretty large knife. Um, <laughs> my uncle gave me a knife. It's really this big. It was like, you know, I want to bequeath this to you. Uh, great. Can I, uh, I can certainly pick my teeth with that thing. <laughs> Huge. It uh, should be hung on the wall. I don't know what to do with it. But I imagine if I were a hunter, uh, it would be important for carving up animals. And a makara could also be a Passover knife. So possibly uh, Peter had something of a Passover knife, a larger uh, knife of some sort. And um, in fact, in Luke chapter 22, uh, starting at verse 34 and running, uh, Jesus has turned toward Jerusalem and he tries to prepare his disciples for difficult times to come. And you remember when he sent out the 12, and then he sent out the 72, and when he did that, he said, you don't need to take a purse. You don't need a pack. You don't need sandals. Everything's going to be taken care of, so to speak. In fact, here in Luke 22, he says, do you remember when I sent you out? He says, everything was taken care of, right? Yeah, right. He says, well, things have changed. He says, but now, and he says that in verse, uh, I think it's 35, but now, he says, uh, you need, oh, 36, you need a purse, you need a knapsack if you've got it, and he says, if you don't, you need, he says, you need a sword, and if you don't need, have a sword, you need to go out and find one. Now, this was figurative language. Jesus was trying to tell them, we're about to go into some really hard times. Because then, some of the disciples say, hey, we've got two swords. And Jesus says, that's enough. And goes on. In fact, later on, as we see here, he says, put the sword back in its place, Peter. Well, he didn't say his name, but you get the idea. What did Peter accomplish? Well, it says he cut off his ear, but it's, uh, it's actually a part of the ear. So he didn't even get the whole ear. But here's the thing that really struck me this week and has been um, echoing in my heart all week. Jesus was in custody. He went on to say what we read. He said... Uh, this is an injustice. I've been in your midst all week. You're treating me like an, a common thief. But you know what? That was a fulfillment 
of the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 10. That uh, prophecy of Isaiah uh, that starts at uh, 52.13 and runs through 53.12 and talks about the servant of the Lord whose life will be a ransom for many. And uh, Jesus says, you're treating me like a common criminal. And then they sweep him away and the disciples run away. Now just think about this for a moment. You're Peter. You draw your sword. And Jesus says, put that thing away. All who live by the sword will die by the sword. And those are the last words Jesus said to you. You gave up everything to follow him. He's your hero. You're going to defend him. That's a noble thing, right? I do believe it is. You're going to defend your Lord. And you, so you pull your sword, but instead he says, put that thing back. All who die, live by the sword die by the sword. And those are the words that you have ringing in your ears as Jesus is crucified on the cross. They're the last words you hear. And if it weren't for the resurrection, those would have been the last words Jesus ever said to Peter. Well, Jesus is led away. The disciples run away. In the meantime, Matthew tells us that Jesus is tried and condemned to be crucified. Peter, later in this same chapter, it appears he tries to follow Jesus and find out what's going on, perhaps to grab a word with him. Who knows? To get a glimpse of him. But then in the process, he denies Jesus, even knowing him. And then the rooster crows even as Jesus had predicted back in verses 33 through 36 of this chapter. And it says, Peter wept bitterly, sourly, probably he sobbed. He sobbed, not for joy, out of deep, unquenchable sadness. Jesus was going to be crucified, was being crucified, and Peter and Jesus, perhaps he, he thinks they're at odds. I thought that was very poignant. What about Judas? Well, in the next chapter, Judas, after learning that Jesus was to be crucified, in verse 3, chapter 27, verse 3, Judas regretted what he had done. He regretted it. He went to the temple to the authorities with, which, with whom he had colluded in this whole affair 
and he expressed remorse and regret. He, he tried to return the money. Like perhaps if he gave back the money which he had exchanged for Jesus' life, maybe they would take back the betrayal and all of their plans to get rid of Jesus. Maybe, I don't know. But he wanted to make amends, didn't he? He wanted to set things right. He wanted to straighten things out. He said, according to Matthew, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, we don't care. Well, they didn't. It little, it, they said, what is that to us? So I just translated it in the way we would talk. Or one of my professors would say, I don't give a hoot. Of course, when he told me something was worth a hundred hoots, I paid attention. They said, you take care of it yourself. You fix it. You broke it, you fix it. You did it. You live with it. Own it. Ever heard that? Those can be bitter words. Sometimes the truth can be sour and bitter, pungent. So Jesus, uh, pardon me, Judas threw the money and left and hanged himself. Here's the interesting thing to me. If not for the resurrection, both disciples, Peter and Judas, would have gone to the grave. Both would have died with regrets. But because of the resurrection... Think about this. Because of the resurrection, Peter and Jesus were reconciled. Even if it was just on Peter's part. You know, we know that Jesus loves Peter and all that, but you can identify with Peter. And they had it reconciled because of the resurrection. Peter heard more from Jesus. Peter saw the rest of the story. Judas took his life. What if he hadn't taken his life? The resurrection could have been there for him. Really helps us to appreciate the power of the resurrection and what it teaches us and how good it is that we can be reconciled and that we're not just left with the consequences. We can't do anything about doing away with the consequences of our lives. And I don't know how you rank them all. I think biblically we'd say, well, they're all of sin, you know? They all fall short. They don't hit the mark. Only some of the consequences will cause us regret. But we should not know regret. We should know joy. We live in an increasingly bitter world. Bitter, bitter, bitter world. I still hang in on one of the social media platforms, but I'm not even sure. I got to put up with so much bitter spirit, cynicism, sour, 
Nobody can see any good in this world. I know that there's a lot that needs to be done. People maybe feel better by just pointing out everything that is bad. And if you talk about it with them, they'll point out that bad in you as well. Everything's bad. And they may, maybe, maybe it makes them feel a little bit better. But we live in a sadly cynical, sour, skeptical world. Maybe that's city life. I don't think people on the farms probably feel that way as much. Or those that live out in the woods a little bit more. But the fact of the matter is, is that it is the resurrection that genuinely gives us the eyes and the validity to see a good God. That would ever be in doubt without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It would just be one religious literature competing against another religious literature. One religious expression against another religious expression, but the resurrection changes everything. It proves that Jesus' death on the cross had meaning and purpose. It fulfills the scriptures. It proves that God had a purpose in that that was not for him, but for the world, for you, for others. It proves that God is good, and in the end, good wins. No matter how dark and ugly it looks, If this isn't true, then why should you sacrifice anything? Get all you can, because death is the last word. Unless Jesus is risen. And if he's risen, then everything is risen. And that means I can take it on the chin. I don't like it, but I can absorb it. In fact, instead of reacting a tit for tat, you act that way, I'll act that way, I can actually follow Jesus in sacrificially giving of myself. And you can too. You can forgive whether they accept it or not. You can love whether they want it or not. You can receive consequences that you can't change with grace. You can love people who don't deserve it. You could love even yourself when you don't deserve it because he's risen. God wins in the end. Good triumphs. Good. All that is good is captured in love. Every fruit of the Spirit follows in the footsteps of love. This is really vital stuff. This is the big picture. And if you get it, it'll bring meaning to your life that you haven't had, and you'll understand the Word of God even better because you'll understand why He can call us to suffer for His sake and why He tells us, don't Pick up the sword. You don't need that sword. 
Don't fight so much for your life. It's not the most important thing. Your life is in my hands, and that life no one can quench or conquer. You have life everlasting. These are the things we have to recover. These are the things that are in play when Jesus is arrested. Consider the consequences. What you sow, you reap. Uh oh. <laughs> there we go. Consider the consequences. What you sow, you reap. Our choices make us. Have you ever heard that? I, I always like to listen to Fernando Ortega when I, on Sunday mornings. Some of you know his music. Um, but when I got in the car this morning, the radio was on. And when I, on other times of the day, I, I listen to sports. And uh, sports radio, talk radio, when I can. Um, and the guy says, because, you know, the big playoff games today, right? And so, um, who's the quarterback of uh, the New England Patriots? This guy's talking about Tom Brady. And he says, he wants us to think about Tom. He says, I think, I think Tom, when he was at Michigan, when he was at college, he probably didn't do all the things that the other college students did. And when he got to the, I mean, you know, he was implying, and then, I mean, he was actually saying in so many words, I can't repeat it completely, but he, he, he was saying, I think Tom Brady didn't just go out and do all the party kind of stuff that people did in college. He really was giving his life to the NFL, that goal he had of making the NFL. And then when he got to the NFL, he says, I don't think Tom was, because he says, our lives, you've heard that thing, he says, We're, our lives are a series of choices that accumulate. Now, I'd never heard it quite like that, but, but he's right. And when you think of Tom Brady, whether you agree or not, he seems pretty focused, and he has made choices. And now they talk about him as the goat. You know what goat means, right? I couldn't get used to that. I still not, but I just thought I would show you how hip I am. Uh, goat stands for greatest of all time. Greatest of all time. Some, many would argue Tom Brady's the greatest of all time when it comes to NFL quarterbacks. All of a sudden, I feel like Paul when uh, I think it was Acts 13 cried out, I believe in the resurrection. And the Sadducees and Pharisees started going at it. <laughs> Consider the consequences. Judas betrayed with a kiss. Peter defended with a sword. Jesus submitted to the Father. Let's look at this another way. We can learn from Judas. 
don't fake it. We can learn from Peter. Don't forget, this is God's battle. It's his kingdom. How often do we fake it or try to do things in our human strength? We, we do things that God calls us to do as believers and followers of him. He calls us disciples. And yet, how often do we try to arrive by faking it or by doing it in our own strength with our own machinations, schemes, and, and usually those are all derived from worldly ways, all of, all of this. His, his two disciples, the one that betrayed him, the one that tried to defend him, didn't rely on the Lord. Jesus submitted his life all the way through. In fact, he submitted his life to God's word, the scripture. He says, I was teaching God's word to you all the time to the authorities, and you didn't arrest me. Now you treat me like a common criminal. But that's okay because that's fulfilling God's word. And that's what I follow. So I wondered, you know, as I was just in this this thought experiment kind of entertaining this idea about Peter and regret and what would have happened if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But he did. And I thought, wonder what kind of an impact that had on Peter. So I went and I read 1 Peter all in one sitting. It doesn't really take that long, and I encourage you sometimes to just sit down and read a whole chapter and just let it, you know, let, soak it in. I just want to read 18 times, 18 times, Peter talks about suffering and uses the word suffering. He was... He was trying to fend off suffering when he pulled his sword. Now, that's all he can talk about. He didn't get it before, but now he spends his whole letter talking about suffering. And I'm just going to read a a blurb. This is an example. This is from chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. He says, for this finds favor with God. So in other words, if you want to please God, you want God to be happy with you, here Peter says, this is what makes God happy. This is what what makes him smile and want to do you favors. He says, it makes God happy when your conscience toward God, because of your conscience toward God, you endure hardship in suffering unjustly. God 
is fond of you, feels fondly toward you. I, I don't know how to put it. This is a word that is the word for grace. God has grace toward you. When he looks at you being loyal and faithful to him and you suffer for it unjustly, it endears him. If I can talk in human terms, you know, it's like you say, it's like a, a proud father or mother saying, that's my girl or that's my boy. That's a beautiful thing. And then he goes on in verse 20, for what credit is it if you sin and are mistreated and endure it? So if you sin, you've got it coming, and if you endure it, okay, that's good. I'm glad. Don't be a baby is what he's saying. You know, you had it coming. You asked for it. You acted stupid. You got stupid. And you maybe got more stupid than you showed, but you got stupid. So bear up. But then he says, for what, then he says, but if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor with God. He repeats himself. Do you think he got it? Where do you think he got it? Where did he get that message when he drew his sword in defense of Jesus? And then he says, for to this you were called since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was maligned, he did not answer back. They called him names. He didn't call them names in return. Well, look at you. You're one too. But we do this. We do this. I, I do this sometimes. I'm ashamed to admit it, but those little, we do it in subtle ways. We don't say, you're one too. I used to say that when I was a child. <laughs> But in our marriage relationships, our relationship, we, we chip back, don't we? When he was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation, but he what? Committed himself to God who judges justly. This, uh, for a lot of years, didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I used to avoid these things. It's much easier handling life uh, without faith. I've been doing, you know, I'd been doing it a lot. I was raised to do it that way, even in a Christian home. We're never going to, we're going to bear the name disciple, but we're going to be like a Judas, faking it. 
Yeah, that's, you know, we think he, he kissed, kissing the rabbi was the act of honor and acknowledgement from a disciple. Judas used that to betray Jesus. He used an act of honor and acknowledgement that comes from a disciple, recognizing you're the one I follow, you are my rabbi, to betray him. And we can fake it like we can do the. We know there are things we can do that say, I acknowledge, I honor you, and yet our hearts are in a very different place. Nowhere, <laughs> nowhere close to the Lord. I know this. You know this. This is a, this is a good reminder for us. We're unfinished projects as disciples. Our salvation is not, we don't doubt that. We don't doubt the faithfulness of Jesus, but we stay close. We keep following, and we want to be authentic if we can. And when we're, when we're faking it, we got to renounce that so that people can say, there's the real deal. I, I can, that person, I know that person's heart. Sure, they're just like me. They, they have their foibles, they sin, they make mistakes. We're all learning. But they seem to just, they, they seem to be straightforward about the way they blew it, apologize, and go on loving, and know joy, and help others. So we don't want to fake it, and we don't want to rely on our own strength. We don't want to pull a sword. What we want to do is pray. We want to do the things of love that Jesus Christ did. We want to follow the Word just like Jesus did. We want to see that Word, that reality that is encoded and embodies the Scripture. We want that reality to be real. And we can't do that if we're trying to push it aside so that we can do it in worldly ways. We want to bring it to life by faith, by following Jesus, by loving like he told us to love, by walking in his spirit. It's really not that hard. It's the ultimate battle between you and the Lord, there's this battle. Paul calls it the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Walk in the spirit. Walk in the spirit, and you'll overcome the flesh. And if this doesn't all make sense, well, just start doing it, and you'll, you'll get it. You learn by doing. That's faith. Will you stand with me? If you would like to pray with me or one of the uh, members of our pastoral leadership, elders, deacons, or their spouses, we're, 
we're up here after uh, I pray for us, come and pray. We'll talk to the Lord about it, whatever it is. Maybe it's to begin following Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. It uh, helps us to see clearly. But above all, Father, thank you for Jesus and the work of your spirit in our lives and for your church, loving people who love you and love one another. May we grow in Christ and become more like him and be a light to the world. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, God bless you.